You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the Warriors. Oh, he's running a little late. He got held up at work. Or maybe he's dead. Oh, God, he's dead! The Depressives. I thought depression was one of those things that only rich people get, like tennis elbow or skin cancer. And the people feeling a little anxious. Chit, chat, chit, chat. Where are we going with this? To the folks who are looking for advice, we're here to share what's worked for us. Took some pretty intensive therapy. Yeah. It really did. After the show, you went to therapy. Years. Years of it. Our goal is to tell your stories, to make you laugh, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, your resident anxious person. And today I'm bringing you the first part of a series that we're doing on grief. I got to speak with Ad Lloyd, who is a comedian and the host of GriefCast. GriefCast is a podcast where Cariad speaks with other comedians about their experiences with death, which is not as intense as it sounds. It's a very similar vibe to group, actually. So uh, group today is just going to be my conversation with Cariad. We had a lot in common. We both have clinical anxiety, and uh, we both had parents who died from pancreatic cancer. But there were a lot of uh, interesting differences there, too. Like, um, we both dealt with death in very different ways. Uh, She got angry and threw chairs, and I let online dating take over my life. So, yeah, it was it was a really great chat. Uh, I I hope you enjoy listening. Coming up, we're going to be doing an episode with a mental health professional who specializes in grief. That episode will have a bunch of different stories about death and bereavement that are very different from the ones that you hear today. Um, Okay, so let's get to the conversation with Cariad. We started by talking about her father who died in 1998. I asked her to tell me what he was like. My dad died when I was 15 of pancreatic cancer, secondary pancreatic cancer. But prior to that, he was quite a difficult man. He wasn't horrible at all. He was just, my mum always says people either like loved him or hated him. Mm -hmm. You know, he was quite like a character, I guess is the polite English way of saying it. So you were 15 when he died. So like, what was your relationship with with him like before he before he got sick? You said he had a difficult personality, like a strong personality. And you have a very strong yeah. personality. <laughs> what was yeah. uh, your relationship with him like? Yeah, it was tricky. Um, we didn't have like the best relationship before he died. To be fair, it was fairly typical father daughter, like mm-hmm. kind of like annoying each other sort of thing I was very independent and he was very opinionated and I'm very opinionated and I think he really wanted opinionated children but like he wanted them to have the same opinions as him (laughs) so he was often just like oh why are you disagreeing with me and you're like because you've trained me in debate to disagree with you we just sort of argued quite a lot and I would never really speak to him properly I'd always you know roll my eyes at anything he said that sort of thing my idol when I was like 14, 15 was Darlene from Roseanne. Oh, amazing. Like, yes. So I was kind of like, that's how I saw myself, like extremely sarcastic. Everyone was annoying. Everyone was really pathetic. Uh-huh. And I saw myself as like the Darlene of the situation. It seems very age appropriate, though. I, I think it would be much weirder if you were like agreed with everything that your dad said and wanted to be like, I don't know, the, oh, yeah, the perfect yeah. child. And yeah, yeah so it, was very, it was very typical, I guess. It was just very mm-hmm. typical father daughter you know like I went to my mum for much more stuff and my mum my mum's still a very reasonable calm person so in the family like you'd go to her because my dad was like much more mad and hot-headed and stuff so 
you know, that kind of parent, like you're like, don't go to him first. He's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. mum's going to be much more rational about things. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't particularly great. Definitely. So uh, we sort of chatted about this a little bit over email, but so your dad died of pancreatic cancer and so did my mom. Yes. And it's like such a shithead type of cancer because, you oh, know, it's yeah, usually it's usually only detected when it's too late to treat. Yeah, it's really a shocking cancer. I mean, I got in trouble the other day because I was like, I called it like one of the boring cancers. Mm-hmm. And all I mean by that is someone got very annoyed with me on Twitter. And I, I obviously, if you have cancer, it's always awful. Mm-hmm. But what I mean by pancreatic cancer being like, I, what I called it was like not sexy. Yeah. Because like the other cancers, I think a lot of people have heard of them. They understand them. If someone says something about breast cancer, you're like, oh, uh, you know, I know where that is. Or if someone says lung cancer, you're like, oh, I know what lungs do. And the problem with pancreatic cancer is like, what is a pancreas? Like no one knows. <laughs> like no one knows what it is or what it does. You don't know if you had to point out in your body, you couldn't pick it in a lineup, you know? Um, pancreatic cancer has the lowest survival rate of all cancers. This is in the UK. So just 3% of those people diagnosed will survive for five years. And it's the only cancer that's seen no improvement in that figure for the last 40 years. And it it basically, you know, it's the fifth biggest cancer killer in the UK, but it, it gets hardly any of the funding. So because it's like I said, it's it's not a sexy cancer. Like people just don't know what it is. It's always had this terrible survival rate. So people don't want to research into it. And so most commonly, if you get diagnosed with it, it tends to be extremely late diagnosis. Yeah. And it tends to be when it's too late to do anything, which is what happened to my dad as well. He was diagnosed in February and dead by the April. My So your, your father lived for about two months after he was diagnosed, right? Like two and a yeah. half months or something like that. My mom, she lived for about a year after she was diagnosed, which is wow. like actually a, yeah, a pretty long time for pancreatic cancer because she yeah, got yeah. into this clinical trial at the University of Pennsylvania, which I, extended wow. her, her life. But then the the form of chemo, this experimental form of chemo that she was on stopped working. Um, it, I'm very, very grateful for that yeah. you know trial because I had all this, you know, so much more time with her. But then I was like, oh, well, maybe we're at a point in modern medicine where this is like the turning point for pancreatic cancer and there are treatments like this and she's going to kick it. And um, so after that, my dad and I were doing all this research on different clinical trials and I really pushed for this immunotherapy trial that was at um, Johns Hopkins. Mm. You know, immunotherapy seems to be like one of the the exciting new cancer treatments. There was this thing called GVAX. They were treating uh, pancreatic cancer with, and it had all these promising results. And she got approved for the trial, but then there were three arms of the trial, and she didn't get the GVAX arm. She got one of the other ones, and it just totally didn't work. And, you know, I feel guilty for, for pushing that because I wonder if she had tried something else you know maybe you just yeah but you just can't do it to yourself because there's always a what if what if what if that's you kind of have to grab the the tiny lights with with cancer and especially with pancreatic cancer because as you said it's just the funding and research is literally starting to change like the last couple of years so so your dad died in 1999 or 2000 um, no, 1998. Uh, 1998. 1998, yeah. Okay, so I'm sure, yeah. I mean, like, the the internet was, like, t- totally different oh, at it, that point. So you're, I'm... Yeah, and it, 
it didn't really exist. We talk about this a lot on, on Griefcast that I am what we call an analog griever. <laughs> and now there's digital grievers, right? So my dad didn't have a Facebook or I never WhatsApp him. You know, he had a mobile phone and it was the size of a house and it was kept in the car. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, so when my dad was diagnosed, my mum talks a lot to me about like there were no charities. And if you think about like the cancer movements, you know, the various cancer movements all over the world, I mean, like, I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously breast cancer is absolutely awful, but we all know pink ribbons and we know about research and stuff. You know, when they told my dad pancreatic cancer, they didn't know anyone. There was no nothing. Yeah. And I went to the Houses of Parliament here in London very recently for a big event trying to raise um, awareness of pancreatic cancer and more research. There's three charities now in the UK. There's a research fund, one for like general pancreatic cancer and one for survivors. And they were saying, you know, they there's a small handful of people who have survived it. And that's a recent or kind of a recent thing that mm-hmm. people are able to if it's caught early enough. Obviously, I don't want to offend anyone with any different cancers. They're all terrible and they're all not not fun <laughs> at all. <laughs> but as I said, pancreatic is a really difficult one because it doesn't really have symptoms. So yeah. that is why it's sort of known as the silent killer as well in the cancer world. So... Yeah, so then the the first symptom usually is that because it's late stage, it's usually like three or four, it's spread to your liver. And so then uh, people turn yellow, they become jaundiced. And that's usually like the first sign, right? Like, is that what happened with your dad? Yeah, that's exactly what happened to my dad. He literally went bright yellow. And then he went to hospital and everyone was said, it's jaundice, it's jaundice, there's something wrong with his liver. And then they said, oh, it's liver cancer. And then my mom said it was like a week later, they were like, oh, it's in his pancreas. So it was... Which is why it was it was so quick, his death, because it was already basically all over his body. And I mean, I talk about on the show a lot as well. Like my dad was a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. He was training for an Ironman when he was diagnosed. I don't even know an oh Ironman, but it's yeah. like they basically, yeah. So he, like and he was only you know, 44, ran, right? Like he was a young was guy in great shape. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Like it, it really upset a lot of people in our, like, I guess, friendship and family because if you would have picked anyone, you would not have picked my dad. Like he was, as I said, training for an Ironman. He'd run triathlons. He'd run the London Marathon. He'd run the Boston Marathon. He'd run the Moscow Marathon. Like he'd gone all over the world. He worked for a charity called World Runners and they literally ran marathons to raise awareness of like charities in Africa. Like he was extremely fit and healthy. And the doctor said to us, I mean, I laugh because what else can you do? Mm. The doctor said, oh, that's probably why it spread so quickly he was so healthy yeah <laughs> I know like what like what because his system was so like his metabolism was so fast and working so well yeah oh it just God. spread it around his body real quick it was shocking because I said yeah he just went yellow and that's you know then my mom said just very quickly everything became very evident that it wasn't you know it wasn't just jaundice and he was extremely sick and so is that what happened to your mom? Did she go yellow? Yeah, she was yellow and she wasn't feeling good. And she got tested by like a local doctor. She went to her primary care and they they thought she had hepatitis C. Oh, yeah. It took a couple weeks before she ended up going to the hospital uh, in Philadelphia, which is like, you know, a bigger research in- institution. And she yeah. actually got yeah. tested. I, I remember my parents calling me and telling me that they had found this mass and they didn't necessarily know if it was malignant at that time because you know if there was a mass on her liver that could potentially be causing the judge I don't know that's when I started like googling shit and I was like what are the what are the potential things that it could be 
oh, it could be pancreatic cancer. What's that? I've never heard of that before. Like, and then reading, oh, 3% for survival rate. Fuck. Oh God, that's awful. It's just, I'm kind of glad that I'm an analog griever. Like I couldn't go to a computer and find out stuff, which, you know, ignorance is bliss. I didn't really know what was going on. And also I was 15. So did your parents tell you immediately what was going on? Did they like explain how serious it was? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think they did. It was difficult because to, because it was so quick. No one really knew what was going on. Do you know what I mean? It was like he was in hospital and he was yellow. And then they said it's his liver cancer. So he's going to have chemo. And then there was more tests. And they did sit me down. You know, and my mum was talking. My dad wasn't saying anything, and which is unusual. <laughs> and my mum was like, you know, dad's got cancer and he's very sick. And because I just didn't know what to say and I didn't know what was happening, you know, I just couldn't take it in. So I didn't say anything. And my dad was kind of like annoyed with me for not saying anything. Like I remember he was a bit like, oh, you know, you're not going to say anything. And he read it. This is the problem. We always like misread each other. So he read it as like, oh, you don't even care. But I just couldn't speak. And so I remember just saying, okay, can I go upstairs? And they were like, yeah. And I went upstairs and I closed my door and I literally like grabbed my dressing gown and like put it in my mouth so that no one would hear like a sob. Cause I was just like, I'd never felt emotion like that. You know, obviously I'd, I thought I'd been emotional in that teenage way. And then when you're presented mm-hmm. with something real, I didn't, I just didn't know what to say or do. I didn't know what the right thing was to do. Now I realize, well, there isn't, you just, you just feel what you feel. But I was so overwhelmed. I just went upstairs and cried by myself and, did kind of know he was dying but I didn't know what that meant my grandparents had died the year before my granny and my granddad but they were very old and so it was like oh they're old and they died that's what happens whereas this was yeah my dad's death was my first kind of like whoa what the fuck (laughs) like what's going on yeah and then he went very quickly into um, a hospice or sort of a, a cancer wing of the hospital actually it wasn't quite a hospice and then we were sort of visiting him for a bit and I remember one day I didn't want to go in because we'd been in every day and it was like I was just so depressed and obviously upset and I said to my mum I'm not going to go in today and she just kind of said I think you have to and that was sort of the first inkling of like oh he might die today like I hadn't really if that makes sense like we've just been we got into a routine of going to see him that's what we do we come home we eat soup we cry we go like Mm -hmm. it was just and the sort of idea that it might end hadn't occurred to me till she kind of said you you have to and then he died he didn't die that day he sort of survived the night and died the next day so were you with him when he when he died yeah we were all with him actually which I'm very glad about and my mum was amazing just incredible I mean I don't know how she did it but we you know he just faded out more and more and more and then I can't remember if they gave him more like when they you know they were giving him morphine and stuff and he wasn't really present and then he just slipped further further away and we were all around the bed and my mum was just holding his hand saying it's okay you can go you can go Mm -hmm. um and it was yeah (laughs) even talking about it now it's it was so hard at the time but my mum gave me a very clear sense of like this is the right thing to do you you yeah you just are with them that's it I don't know how she knew she hadn't dealt with anything like this before um 
and we just yeah we were just there then he just you know he'd just gone as they do they just go and that was my first dead body I've had several since (laughs) hence why I do a podcast about death Mm -hmm. um but yeah it was very it was very peaceful it was very peaceful um and he died in as I said it was morning so it felt kind of like we'd been through this awful night three of us and then it was kind of over yeah um this is really hard for me because I'm so used to asking other people questions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so I can I imagine like it's real, yeah. My brain, yeah, my brain is like, oh, I should ask Rebecca something because <laughs> this is her episode. So were you with your mum? So I actually, I, for the year that she was sick, I was living in New York and working in New York and I was lucky because my job gave me Fridays, uh, I could work from home. So I was four days in New York at my job and then three days a week in Pennsylvania uh, with my mom. And so I yeah. was there a lot. And then actually my aunt is uh, a nurse, my mom's sister. And she was visiting oh, wow. and she told me that I needed to come home uh, a week before wow. a week before she died. And I'm I'm grateful that she told me that because I don't think I would have otherwise. Because, yeah, um, you sometimes need someone on the inside, don't you? <laughs> like, because I think it can just look the same for ages. I think my dad, my dad was very like didn't want, didn't want it to disrupt. Like, I've I've two brothers didn't want it to disrupt our lives, and also yeah. was sort of in denial. I think so. Didn't was still thinking that she was going to get into another clinical trial or something. But the the hospice nurse, yeah. the hospice nurse, like, wasn't super straightforward with him. I think she was like, she needs to start hospice. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean she'll die. That'll mean, it means one of what? two things. Yeah, she was like, it means one of two things. Either <laughs> okay. she'll, like, get her strength together to start another clinical what? trial or she'll pass away. Yeah, so I think my dad was like, he was still researching mm. clinical trials that week. And that's really hard because <laughs> yeah. my yeah kind of what well, in in the UK kind of when you go in a hospice that's it like once they get in a hospice it's I like, think that's what it's supposed to be I think it's very yeah. weird that this woman did this um, yeah she perhaps she just couldn't bear to break the bad news that day and my mum says a similar thing that they she said the doctors were never clear about what was happening to her and though she does also say you know perhaps she just couldn't hear it yeah. But she says she remembers going to a room and she kept saying, what's happening? And this doctor was like, well, we're going to give him some chemo. And she was like, why? Why are you giving him chemo? Is he what? Like, what do you think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Will he survive it? And they were like, oh, you know, no, we can't say we'd probably not. And she was like, then why? What yeah, is chemo going is on? awful and painful. And so it's like, what's happening? Why yeah, are you? And she, yeah. she says she wishes he hadn't had the chemo. But again, this is what I mean, like the what if, because they decided to go with chemo because obviously there's a chance. Who mm. knows? It might do this. And she said now she wishes they hadn't because he had such little time. And when he had the chemo, he was just so sick. It didn't do anything. It was too far gone. And she wished a doctor had said, don't bother, go home, enjoy each other. But they were very much like, no, no, take the chemo, you never know. And it was like, she kind of said like her gut instinct was like, this is beyond anything, but who's going to turn down chemo? Like if they're offering it, maybe, you know, obviously you have the tiniest grains of hope left in you. I see it from both sides. I see that it's very difficult in the medical profession. They are not, they don't know half the time. They're just guessing based on the amount of knowledge and evidence they have but from the obviously family point of view it's it's so hard because you just want answers and they often can't give you to you so um 
since I'd never been like around a dying person before, there were all these steps to death yeah. that I didn't, I feel like if I went through it now, I would be like, oh, this is where this part happens. But I didn't yeah. know, like, yeah. like towards the the last few days of her life, she was hallucinating. Was she on morphine as well? Because that, that. Oh, yeah. And then she's also yeah. on drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The morphine is a, so, is a hallucinogen. Like the morphine really is normally when people start saying really interesting stuff because like yeah they're on what it's like laudanum isn't it they're high basically um do you remember anything that your dad said he like to be honest toward last couple of days he just made no sense which i think mm-hmm. can be really hard because you really feel like you've lost them and you're also and like looking like, for meaning and everything yeah, that they, and like all their, their yeah. last words and like trying to yeah like hold on we, to whatever they're saying so it's so frustrating if it doesn't make sense yeah exactly and I again we talk about this on grief us all the time of like there's no such thing as a Hollywood ending like I think people if you watch films you think there's going to be this moment before they die where they're completely calm and compass and they are able to say to you but I'm afraid to say that that moment if it does happen is probably gonna happen a week before they die so don't be like if you've got something to say I'm always like say it <laughs> like don't mm-hmm. be waiting for the hour before because by then yeah they'll probably be we use the expression off their tits it's like English expression means like mm-hmm. they're, they're gone it doesn't mean they're not aware of you at all of course they can still be very aware of you but they often the communication can be bad yeah my, you can't have a conversation in the no, same way yeah. you can't my dad was kind of he was just saying loopy stuff just I can't really remember it but I remember my mum me and my brother were like what does he mean and my mum was like well he's off his head he's off his rocker at this point <laughs> like she was like don't worry about it but um since then I've had like I said my dad died then six months later his father died and then we had oh, just various members of the family great aunts great uncles and then mm-hmm. many years later my husband's dad died then his mum died so I've had like yeah 20 years of going through other deaths and seeing dead bodies and and yeah it's I mean it's a weird thing to say but it's like you never forget your first love yeah. and you never forget your first death and mm-hmm. you know yeah I, I dealt with those things very differently because I knew what was coming so when that mm-hmm. was happening I was very much more aware of like what certain sounds meant and you know the the shockingness of sometimes the noises they can make and when a body is fighting it and you know, I was more prepared, which I think because we don't have death so present in our lives these days can be very shocking for some people, which I, which is why one of the reasons I do the podcast, like it, we have to be more aware that we're all going to die. You will uh-huh. encounter it in some way, <laughs> like stuff happens that would be helpful to know. I wish I had known about, yeah, the, the noises too, because I, I mean, so yeah, the yeah. last, the last night that my mom was alive, it was actually great that two of her sisters are nurses both of them were there um both of them came (laughs) um and then her her brother and his wife came and so we were all having this like really weird like gruesome sleepover yeah where my dad had set up a bed for my mom um downstairs because she couldn't go up the stairs in this sort of the den and we were taking like shifts sleeping with her and then we like if something you know she was gonna die we would wake up the rest of the family so uh at one point it was me and my two aunts like sleeping on the floor next to my mom's bed and she was just making these like like horrible noises which I didn't it's very animalistic yeah it sounds like an animal in pain doesn't it it's really it is really horrible because you just want them to feel peace and not be in pain and it's I ended up having to 
leave. I like couldn't be in the room anymore. And I went yeah. upstairs. And then as soon as I fell asleep, she passed away, which I also, you know, so I wasn't uh, there, but like her siblings were there <clears throat> and my brother what? was like, there. And my this dad. sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a crap thing to say. Obviously I don't know you or your family, but I do think when I hear stories like that, I think perhaps she was waiting for you to leave the room so that you didn't have to see it. Like that's what my aunt said. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> like I, I we don't think, think she would have wanted you to be here for that. Yeah, like I really do think there's a weird thing of like they don't have control, but they do have some control. I mean, it's so hard to explain if you haven't seen it. But having talked to so many people about death, I really do think sometimes, like people feel bad and they're like, "Oh, I wasn't in the room." And I'm like, perhaps they didn't want you in the room because they didn't want you to see it. They didn't want you to be in pain because especially now I've had a kid like my perspective on it has uh, changed a lot because I now think oh I would do anything to protect her anything I wouldn't want her to see that you know but I completely understand that feeling of like oh I, I left the room because I couldn't handle it and that's when she you know the guilt of that I completely understand but I don't know I didn't know your mum I'm sure it's very annoying. Some strange no, lady that, from England. That, I agree with you. And I also, that, that was like very comforting for me to hear. Like both my aunts told me that in the moment because I felt really awful that I'd gone to sleep and I had missed it. And like, yeah. it's nice to think that maybe, yeah, she just wanted a little bit more privacy. She just wanted to be with her sisters. And people who, you know, you know, sisters is such a different relationship to daughters. Mm -hmm. You know, they've seen her as a child. They've seen her in pain before and they're nurses. So she, that feeling of like, oh, this is, they can handle it. This is, and who, it is really awful watching your parent die. Like it, it really is. It's fucking horrible. So mm -hmm. the humanity of you wants to protect yourself just for a second to breathe. I always had this feeling like at the hospital, I had to go outside to breathe life again because it felt like death was getting into you. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like it's so heavy in a room and when someone's dying and you do have to literally leave a room occasionally to remember that you're alive and you can breathe and, and that gives you the strength to be able to then come back in. There's just so much emotion going on, isn't there? Like you just want to help them and you just can't. And that is just ugh, so, so hard. So do you remember any like feelings that were surprising to you when it happened or immediately afterwards? You know, it affects everyone so differently. Some people really do just cry and they feel lots of sadness or depression, but I decided to combat <laughs> sadness by going full on, like, you know, seeing red. I was just such an angry teenager. I just went like, yeah, Hulk. You, you threw a chair in Mrs. Hughes' class, I, I heard. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so, oh no, who told you? Am I in trouble again? Um, yeah, like I, th I, I threw a chair across a classroom and I, you know, you have to understand, like I was a super good student mm. really. Like I, the most I'd ever done has been a bit cheeky. I just went so rageful and my dad died two weeks before my GCSEs, which is like the big exams we take at 16. Oh man. So we have like two sets of exams. We So it's not like high school. It's like we have a massive set at 16 and a massive set at 18. Mm -hmm. Everybody takes a 16 one. And yeah, he died two weeks before my general certificate. So I was, you know, if I had this school like asking me what to do about exams and I just didn't care, you know, I just didn't care about anything anymore because my dad had died. So... So how did your how did you take out your anger? What did you I, besides throwing the chair? Did you were you angry at your friends? Like were you angry at your 
How, what did you I feel? was very angry at my family. I took a lot... I mean, I would just, like... I would just get into rows with people. So, I'm five foot three. I'm really short and small. So, I couldn't, like, physically intimidate anyone. Like, you would laugh. It's like a, a hobbit trying to fight you. <laughs> um, but I have, like, a big voice. And that's how I kind of manifested it. So, scream at people. I just get into fights about things and... Yeah, do you yeah, think that was like teachers, you were know? you allowing yourself to like feel your feelings or was that a way to like keep you know escape from your feelings i i mean trust me this took me 20 years to work out and some therapy but um i think what i was doing was i was very conscious i thought i don't want to cry so when i get angry the tears the tears stop flowing so I'm just going to get angry. So like a teacher would be like, Cariad, are you okay? And I'd be like, fuck you. What the fuck do you fucking know about my fucking life? You don't fucking... Oh, as if you give a shit about me. You know, just like, yeah. a, like a teenage rage would just explode and this poor teacher would be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad I asked. Okay, you can leave the classroom now. So the anger just made, you know, no one, no one would dare ask me if I was okay. And then of course at night I'd be like, why does no one ask me if I'm okay? I'm so lonely. Mm. And it was like, because you spend the day telling everyone to fuck off. So. <laughs> like, I have words through a lot of this stuff, guys. Did anyone um, at that time say, like, hey, I think you would benefit from going to therapy or talking to someone about it? Or Yeah, I mean, this is, again, in, I've talked to other comedians on my show who had similar age where this sort of trauma happened to them. Because I was 15, I fell into the bracket of um, a child. Yeah. So you can't get adult counselling till you're 16. So my mum tried to take me for bereavement counselling, but they took me to the children. They would only accept me on the children's counselling. And this is all NHS, so it's free. That meant I went into a room with a doll's house, tiny chairs and, you know, toys everywhere. And I was And 15. that's so trippy. And you've just so, experienced this trauma. Yeah, and now you're like, are they like exactly. handing you a colouring book or something? And like, yeah, you. like there was like pencils and stuff and I had to sit on this tiny chair and the poor woman I mean you can imagine mm -hmm. the you know the attitude I gave her <laughs> I was like she tried and yeah so I had this horrible experience and it just I fell through the gap I guess is what you'd say because of my age and um so then I just basically just my mum said well do you want you know when you're 16 do you want to try and get some proper counseling I was like no shit I don't want to do yeah. it whereas my mum and my brother because my brother's older they both had um this amazing service we have in the UK called Cruise which is free bereavement counseling oh, wow. and it's a charity and they come to your house and they give you I mean, it's only 10 sessions but the fact that it exists just means it's such a lifeline for people who are going okay I just I don't know how to process what just happened to me so they both had this you know free service and I just went I'm fine I don't need it mm -hmm. And I think I wasn't ready. So I I tried a bit more in my 20s as well. I tried like a couple of sessions and it was just awful. Yeah, so I, I didn't have it until really about a year and a half ago properly. And it's and I have to say it's been a game changer. I, I do wish I'd gone earlier, but I wasn't ready. So, you know. So why did you, why did you decide to start a year and a half ago? I, I've always been quite anxious and then I'm you know I'm a comedian I'm a performer I'm an actor so that kind of you know contributes to your neurosis because it's very unstable and you don't have a lot of control in your life and then my anxiety just got worse and worse and worse and I remember going to the doctor and I was like oh I can't sleep and I have this like rash on my hands and my gums are bleeding like you know maybe <laughs> yeah, and I was like oh so I don't know what's wrong with me and he literally looked at me and he was like do you think you might be stressed and I was like oh oh yeah 
oh, maybe that hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> and it was my, again, the amazing, amazing NHS that we have. He said to me, mm. um, okay, well, I can give you some free sessions of CBT. And I had some CBT. And then afterwards I was like, mm, I think I still need some help. And then he said, okay, you can have some free sessions of mindfulness. So I got, I mean, this doesn't happen for everybody on the NHS. I, I think I definitely lucked out on the system. I just was in the right place at the right time. And I had some mindfulness therapy. And then I started really thinking, this obviously is about my dad. Like, how can it not be? And so I went back and I said, I think I need to see someone properly. And they there was a waiting list, like quite a big waiting list. But I said, you know, I was like, look, this happened when I was 15 and I'm in my 30s. I'm happy to wait. <laughs> like, I've, I've waited my entire life to talk about this. It's fine. So I waited quite a long time and then um, a psychologist became free and I started seeing someone. But it was definitely, there was like these external symptoms that kept happening and I and I start thinking that's so interesting so like your anxiety manifests itself in sort of a in a sort of a physical way do you have the like psychological anxious stuff too going oh, on yeah, or, yeah, like yeah yeah massively yeah yeah like I had that massively and I think what was we have this thing in in, in the UK the Edinburgh Comedy Festival and so because I'm a comedian we go to Edinburgh every August it's like a huge big deal and yeah I was like trying to do Edinburgh and I was in a very stressful situation with my work and so it tipped from being just plain old anxiety which I'm used to to like my body was almost like crying like will you please talk to someone about this and then when he said are you stressed I thought oh yeah like you know I'd be I, I'm self-employed I work 24 hours a day I'd just been in Edinburgh doing like 28 shows in a row and I'd been doing three different shows so I'd actually done 28 times three shows and I hadn't been oh you know God. yeah exactly like and I was like oh yeah hmm. but I didn't know what anxiety was until I started going to these things like I just thought that was my personality I honestly thought until you started going to therapy yeah like I just thought I'm just a warrior like and when people yeah. would talk I guess I had friends that had OCD and I had friends that would talk about anxiety like oh I can't go somewhere and I didn't have that so I was like oh I don't think I have anxiety I'm just a bit of a warrior and I didn't know about the side of it which is like compulsive thoughts and obsessing yeah, the obsessive over thoughts that won't stop yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Like which are I, contributing year to inability to sleep inability to like do yeah. the things that yeah and I didn't really know that I just thought oh that's just me I'm just I just stress about things I'm just a bit neurotic and especially being an actor and performer you know there's this kind of stereotype of like oh she's just a crazy actress you know she's a crazy performer she's eccentric and I just thought <laughs> oh yeah I just thought oh I'm just someone I'm like I'm just uptight and neurotic basically it's what I thought and then once I started reading, you know, my doctor said, gave me a book on anxiety and I started reading it. And I literally, I rang up my mum and I was like, we both have anxiety. And she was like, no, no, we're just warriors. I was like, no, no, it's a thing. Like other people don't, don't have this. It is, it is a clinical thing. Yeah. Look here, there are books about it. And I had <laughs> yeah. no idea. Like, and you know, because my mum definitely, definitely suffers from anxiety as well. Although it's taken me a couple of years to get her to admit that. Uh -huh. um, like, and so... I just thought yeah oh, there's a huge genetic component oh yeah. massively and I just thought oh you know I'm just like my mum we both just worry all the time about everything and feel sick if we're late and you know like obsess about what people have said about us and what we've said about them and if think we've done everything wrong you know just like normal <laughs> just like a normal person would mm -hmm. um so yeah like I guess the last year and a half has been a big kind of unpacking of my grief my grieving and my anxiety and how it's connected and then I because I'm someone who 
my dad died very early. So I've spent my life since I was 15 talking to people about death and grief because obviously as you get older, it happens to more people. And I, I used to say I was like the go-to grief girl. Like if somebody's parent died, they'd be like, oh, you should ring Carrie Ad. Her dad died when she was 15. So she kind of like knows the situation. So, and I'd had a lot of these like intense conversations with people. And then I just thought, oh, I wonder if I recorded them. They might be of interest to someone. So that's, that came after the counselling that I started Griefcast because I, I think only after the counselling was I able to go, I'm actually willing to talk about this publicly because before then I'd been very private about it. Since you didn't start therapy until about a year and a half ago, did you feel like you had developed coping mechanisms to kind of yeah, deal with your... definitely. I think the big thing for me is like I'm a performer, so a lot of stuff would come out in my writing and my characters. And I did this Edinburgh show, what we call character comedy. So like kind of characters and sketches, but like with just me. And I did this show and it, it went very well. And it wasn't till literally about a year later, I realized like every character's dad wasn't around somehow. <laughs> like, And I hadn't even noticed. And wow. I, I played a character. She was, um, her dad was a magician, but she was a scientist and he was making her stand in to be the assistant. Mm-hmm. And so the whole joke was she couldn't do anything and she was a scientist and all the tricks would go wrong. But the whole time, the whole sketch, she kept saying like, oh, dad, he's just coming. Oh, dad, dad, can you come here? Oh, he's just coming. But I have to like, you know, I have to tread water before he gets it's all I'll entertain you even though I and then it suddenly occurred to me I was like oh my god you wrote a character whose dad literally had left the room and wouldn't come back in like how did you not (laughs) put two and two together that quite clearly this was about your dad dying so it like Mm -hmm. leaked out in weird ways but I was always very self-aware of like if I was having a bad grief day I would kind of like you know just look after myself buy a big bar of chocolate go for a walk call a friend just kind of really Mm -hmm. basic stuff but I wasn't really I wasn't really processing until I started the therapy I'd say I was just kind of coping so I was just kind of like getting through those bad days you know and I would also obviously I'm not lucky but the fact that my husband has lost both his parents we you know I have an amazing partner in my life who understands what it's like to be grieving so we would kind of look after each other quite a lot and you know, if you're like, oh, I'm just having a day where I really miss them, the other one would be like, yeah, I totally know how you feel. So let's just eat some chocolate and watch a film, <laughs> like, and try and feel better. Do you, did, were you doing a performance or improv before he died, or was that something that you started after? Um, I was doing like a little bit, but not not really. You know, like school plays. It wasn't really like I, he knew that I wanted yeah. to be a performer, and he knew like he'd seen me in bits and pieces. But yeah, because I was 15, I and I didn't really start. Um, doing comedy at all I wanted to be like an an actor doing Shakespeare um yeah and then it didn't happen so I I kept I kept getting the comedy roles do you think he would be proud of the work that you're doing yeah I do I do he was it's funny we started by saying like we had a difficult relationship but my dad was like obsessed with telling us how much he loved us and how proud he was of us to the point that it became a family joke that it was really annoying because <laughs> he'd like he'd say it every morning I love you I'm so proud of you and we're like yeah we know oh my god stop saying it so <laughs> I know which even though we had like a difficult relationship the one thing I'm very glad of is like I knew how he felt about me I knew that he loved me I knew that he was proud of me I he did a good job at making that very clear, which is hard. It's hard because it's nice in one way. Obviously, it's, I'm very privileged that I know that, but obviously I'm also sad that 
I wish he was here to see, see the things that I do. And a couple of times, like, a couple of things I've done, my brother has been like, oh, he would have loved that. And I do a lot of improv. And I do this um, show called Ostentatious, which is an improvised Jane Austen show. And it's in the West End at the moment. And, you know, little things like that, my brother would will always be like, God, he would have loved to come and seen this. Like, this would have been... And I, and what's funny is I know he would have been so embarrassing. Like, he would have made such a fuss and I would have been mortified <laughs> and he would have been telling everyone he was my dad and that would have caused a row because I'd have been like, why can't you just be normal and just be quiet? But, you know... He w- He's there with posters. Oh, He's my God. You. Yeah, like, he would have been like... Uh, and that, again, was some of the rows where I was like, can you just tone it down a bit? Like, it's just a bit much... Like, that's often what we were rowing about. Um, but, yeah, he, I know he would have been very proud. But, you know, mm-hmm. I'm learning through my therapy that it's okay to be sad about that. Like, that used to make me mm-hmm. just so uncomfortable. Like, well, but he's not here, so let's not talk about it. And now I'm like, yeah, he's not. And it's okay to just have the sadness for a bit. I, I know that you, like me, you are an anxious person. Um, have you ever experienced depression? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Again, I don't think I realised it at the time. I think when I got to university, I found that very hard. Um, I think a lot of stuff, a lot of the grief started leaking out at university. I kind of, you know, was like going out and drinking more and I was away from my family for the first time, I guess. And that sort of started making me kind of go, oh, actually, what what's just happened to me? And And again, being around people who you know, they were there to have a good time and party. And I was like, oh, are you aware that you're going to die? <laughs> like, it's yeah. the kind of, the trouble when you experience something very young, it makes, it's hard to be a young person, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I definitely- Yeah, because you have, you've experienced this weight that- Yeah. Really, I mean, folks only, like, they're not made to watch their parents die yeah. at that age, right? Exactly. Like, it's something that you expect to happen much later on in life. So it gives you this, like, sort of, bizarre maturity that you're not necessarily ready for yeah you're sort of like a middle-aged woman in this party which Mm -hmm. no kind of bums everybody out and um, uh yeah so I definitely have had periods of depression but I think I don't know I wonder like it's hot you know and it's hard to separate like oh would that have happened anyway like because I have this Mm -hmm. kind of anxiety and depression I think my uh, you know I think it does run in my family I think part of my anxiety is like I don't allow myself to be depressed so I'll be like, well, let's just work 24 hours a day. Then we don't have to think about things. That's more like I, the depression doesn't even get in the room. Yeah. So anxiety as like a coping mechanism for depression too. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's very strange and circular how they're like both connected. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, because I was trying to, and I'll go, I'll talk to the the mental health professional in the, uh, in the next episode a little bit more about this, but I was trying to like parse out the difference between grief and depression you know and how like how they're different and how they're similar and like I was thinking you know like grief it's sort of like you know something has been taken away from you something's been ripped away from you which is not necessarily the case with depression like grief can lead to depression but like that's not always um but I was thinking about like like coping mechanisms for depression like for me in particular Mm. um have been very different from from grief like I'm a relatively like low energy person I think after my mom died I I had almost like a manic way of of dealing with it like I I was just constantly like trying to be okay and like in survival mode like I, I just I just need to keep going or else I'm gonna 
will feel like I'm going to die myself if I don't just keep going. There's an amazing book, which I'd really, I talk about on Grief Class all the time, called Grief Works mm -hmm. by Julia Samuel. And she's a grief psychotherapist and I did an episode with her. And in the book she talks about, which is the first time I'd ever read this, that grief and depression have the same symptoms. And that just blew my mind because I was like, what? Uh -huh. and, and she was like, you know, you, you feel this, the isolation you feel, the, the lethargy, the feeling of giving up. She's like, it's the same as depression. It's just you have a very, you know, your reason is very clear. And obviously some people don't you know have depression and they can't find a reason they just feel awful I'd really recommend it because it, it really blew my mind of like the sort of like the actual like chemical truth of grief and like what it is because I always thought like oh it's just this crazy weird thing that happens to you and it's like no like when something is taken from you your body physically reacts to that and yeah you feel awful and I completely relate to the manicness like I unfortunately I have like a lot of energy I'm a very <laughs> high energy person and I can I can like tip to manic very easily and I honestly think I've probably been doing manic for like 17 years mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and like now I'm like oh I could do a break actually maybe I need to start like talking about this um because I think that's a lot of what I was doing was like this huge amount of energy to keep away the feelings because it was just so overwhelming and I think the younger you are the obviously the harder it is to to process what's happening to you again she talks about in the book Julia a little bit like the you know kids under if you lose a parent under 10 like it you don't really you can't really get your head around that to your 18 because you're a child you're a child like just makes no sense yeah and the other thing they they say about children who experience grief is you get frozen in that time that's definitely what happened to me is like I froze as a 15 year old for like 15 years because <laughs> it was like that's the last time anything made sense was when I was 15 so you kind of clinging to the life when they were still there and they were healthy we've spoken about that like on Griefcast a little bit about how you felt like you were frozen at 15 for years which was so interesting for me to hear because like you seem so wise <laughs> and like I know that you've you've been to therapy you're talking like you've changed a lot in recent years but it's like it's hard for me to like see Carrie Ad Lloyd you know like a few years ago still like frozen in this 15 year old like <laughs> mentality because you're so like you didn't see me man deep you didn't see me man so... <laughs> I was crazy <laughs> it was wild I guess what I mean so... that's the weird thing about losing a parent when you're younger is like you are wise because you understand that life is you know ephemeral and you appreciate things so you have this real wiseness but when I say phrase at 15 it's like I still reacted like a 15 year old to everything and like when I would like hang out with teenagers or like if I met a teenager it's like I got them like I just uh, understood yes. that teenage mentality and like if they reacted to things I was like yeah totally I'm totally with you this is so unfair <laughs> like I kind of still had the reactions of a teenager and I still looked at the world slightly like a teenager so I could be very wise about life and death and mortality but like if you told me the bus was going to be late it was like what oh my god like what like I just kind of felt stuck in that world yeah that makes sense because that was such a significant time yeah and yeah like you're able to tap into that mentality like so easily and remember yeah. like those feelings yeah and I guess I just really it's hard to let go of is what I really felt like I really struggled to let go of who I was at 15 because mm. I spent so much time, you know, with that 15-year-old girl 
being in so much pain that it was hard to notice, oh, you're actually in your 30s now. <laughs> like you can, mm-hmm. you can let that go. You can let that, that very hurt. You don't have to look after that person anymore. Like, but obviously it, grief is grief. Like whether you experience it at 15 or 45 or in your 20s or 30, like it, it's still painful. And we say on the show all the time, like the first year is just just a blur like don't even expect to remember it you know like you said you either go manic or numb or you mm-hmm. you just as long as you're getting as, as long as occasionally you get dressed in the first year that's what I say to people you're doing great like that's it I like showed up at work like a few days later and they were like I think they were not expecting me to be back that quickly yeah I started doing yeah. online dating I like oh immediately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like I was like I need to I need to get out in the world just I such was, a perfect place to start a relationship right like yeah I know died, so I'm just ready to ready to settle down <laughs> like I know and part of it was I think um I also would tell uh the guys that I went out with very I, I think I sort of enjoyed shocking them with, oh like, yeah yeah my mom my mom just died and like sort of like um seeing what the reaction was yeah oh I was I mean imagine as a teenager people used to ring the house and be like can I speak to Mr Lloyd and I'd be like no he's dead (laughs) and then just wait for the reaction like oh sorry we were just like you know ringing to sell you something I'm like oh well it's gonna be hard to sell it to him isn't it because he's dead like I think that comes from your shock I think Mm. your shock I really do believe like because and when I say you, I mean like one yeah. is shocked. And so you do it to other people to kind of like see the reaction and be like, yeah, it is shocking, isn't it? Like you're kind of looking for it in another human to be like, what does it look like when I say my mum said to you? And you see their face and you're like, oh, yeah, it is shocking. I am shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's uh-huh. still I think it's kind of processing it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. like that's so common. I think I like there's a giant space in your life as a whole and so you're just trying to like shove stuff in it and you know whether that's you know some people do food or alcohol or dating or social media like Mm. you're just shoving stuff in this hole and nothing fills it Mm. and then eventually you're like oh it's just pain isn't it like I just have to let the pain out of this hole and I also think it's like a very successful human coping mechanism because like actually if you did feel those feelings immediately after death I don't think you'd ever leave the house again like I think your body waits till you're ready I mean that's what shock is that your body goes yeah you know what let's pretend nothing's happening and we'll just keep them here for you and (laughs) when you're ready we'll be here because I think if you immediately were like I'm gonna feel everything now I mean I yeah I just don't think Mm -hmm. you're too raw and vulnerable at the beginning I think after seeing someone die and after having been through an illness or even if it's you know people who get phone calls out the blue and something's happened very suddenly or traumatically so I think your body goes into shock totally to protect you to be like don't worry just pretend it's not happening go back to work and then when we're ready we will unpack this box with you so uh in in creating grief cast why did you decide to make it a podcast why did you decide to do audio like you're such a performer you're so expressive why did you decide to do podcasting instead of like a some sort of video series or something like that it's funny i've I mean, a few reasons. I guess it's easier. <laughs> it's easier just to stick a microphone in front of someone than it is to, like, get a video and, and you know, edit it and stuff. But I think the true reason is I didn't want a camera on me. I guess that's my job is, like, a camera on me pretending to be someone else. And I always feel very comfortable. Like, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a, quite a chatty person. <laughs> and I like talking. And 
talking to me feels very natural. And so just having a chat with someone without the pressure of like, what do I look like? Or it just feeling like a bit of a chat made it feel safe, I guess, made it me feel safe. Because I said, I hadn't, I hadn't really talked about this at all publicly. I don't do stand up as myself. I'm a character. I'm an actor. Like it's, everything is mm-hmm. not me. And this was the, f- this is the first thing I've done as me. So I guess I sort of wanted to hide a bit as well. So, um, has, has your experience working on Grease Cast, do you think that it's like uh, affected the way that you see, see death or think about your own, you know, experience with, with loss? Yeah, massively. Like I, when I first started talking to people, it was very difficult sometimes to talk about it. And it's been a very, I didn't, I honestly did not expect this to happen because <laughs> I guess I was naive, but it's been very a very healing process for me um, because I've talked about him and what happened a lot. And so it's become a lot less painful because you're, you know, you're airing it. It's like that thing. It's like a wound, isn't it? You need to get the air on it. And so the more I've talked about it, like some things that were so hard to talk about before have become so easy. And then I've uncovered, you know, other pain that I didn't know was there because (laughs) I've been able to deal with other stuff. And then Mm -hmm. the amazing thing is like these amazing people that come and share their stories with me. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you feel the same way. You feel so privileged that people are sharing such personal stories with me. And, you know, they're comedians, they're writers, they're performers. They're not people who normally talk about serious stuff. They are the same as me. They normally hide behind jokes. And for them to be so vulnerable and honest, it's made me realise, which I already knew, but it's just hammered at home. Everybody has this. Everybody will go through it in some degree or other, some much worse. You know, some people's stories are just heartbreaking. And then other people's stories Mm. are very sad. But, you know, they said goodbye. They had great moments. They had a beautiful relationship. And... And you sort of start seeing that, like, death is everywhere. We're just not talking about it. That's all it is. And it's made me, it's made me, obviously, I'm still very anxious about death, but it's made me feel a lot calmer about what happens after you go. Because you're just constantly meeting stories of survival. Like, these people going, yeah, this happened, I'm still here. And that's how I feel. It's like, it you know, my father dying at 15 obviously is a huge part of my life and it definitely defines me because how can it not? It's like the biggest thing that's ever, you know, had happened to me in my as my mm. childhood. But I'm still here and I'm okay. And that's what I love about these stories is those people are okay. And I guess it, it sort of gives me this, it gives my listeners, I think, I get these emails saying it gives them hope and it gives me a bit of hope of like, yeah. oh, we will get through this somehow. Like somehow, even when you you know feel you won't and your heart is breaking into literal pieces you it somehow gets back together you keep putting one foot in front of the other you keep going out and seeing friends and having a normal life but somehow you keep going and again you know I'm 20 years down the line of my dad dying and I'm having a you know this week has not been fun I've had a really bad week just thinking about him a lot and obviously the podcast brings it up (laughs) And I still yeah. have, you know, I still have moments where I think, oh, I feel so shit, but I, I know I will get through it. I know I will. I know it's just grief. And what I found so helpful about the podcast is understanding, like, like we said, like, it doesn't magically stop after one, two, three, four, five years. It will be with you for the rest of your life in some capacity, but not every day, not all the time. And that's, of course it will. They were your parent or your child or your brother or your sister, like, they meant something to you that's why you still miss them 
So that's our show for today. Visit grouppodcast.com for links to Griefcast and more on Cariad's work. If you have a question or a idea for a future show, there are a few different ways you can get in contact with us. You can call the group voicemail, uh, 707-510-0270. Or you can email me at rebecca at grouppodcast.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast to make sure that you have the next episode when it comes out. And again, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. Music in this episode is by The Losers. Please take care of yourself and be kind to yourself. Even if everything's not okay, everything is okay. And anyway, I'm not depressed. I just feel like I'm in a thick, dark fog and everyone disappoints me and nothing works out and what's the point of anything anyway? And before you ask, it's not because I'm not sleeping, okay? Because I'm getting 14 hours of sleep a night.